For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Nikki Segnet. Nikki is the author of the hit cooking books, The Flavour Thesaurus and Lateral Cooking. After a career in advertising, she shot to culinary fame with The Flavour Thesaurus, winning multiple awards, including the Guild of Food Writers Award for Best Debut, and selling over 250,000 copies. Her fans include Nigella Lawson, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, and Heston Blumenthal. And her books are now a staple of kitchens around the world, having been translated into 15 languages. Her latest book, The Flavour Thesaurus, More Flavours, explores 92 primarily plant-based flavours. Nikki, welcome to Table Talk. Uh, Hello, thank you for having me. Nikki, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Um, Well, the very earliest, it's not necessarily a memory, but it's a story. My mother tells me that when I was about two years old and she was chopping up some steak for a casserole, uh, I stood on the chair and fixed her with my little brown eyes and looked at the meat and then looked back at her and said, poor doggy. <laughs> She's never felt the same about meat since. <laughs> Every time I cut I know, a piece of steak up, I think, poor doggy. Poor doggy. <laughs> it's closely followed by my mother coming and finding me. My mother's great, but she came and found me and said uh, she was really, really angry with me. And she found that I had been, um, I'd stolen a beef oxo cube uh, and I'd started to unpeel the silver. It used, they used to have really lovely silver foil on them and I peeled it off and was nibbling it and eating it. And I stashed it in the bottom of my bed. <laughs> She'd found it. Uh, and I was in terrible trouble, really terrible trouble for this. But um yeah, Oxo cubes are a great source of shame for me now. This is still a black thing. That didn't she eat Oxo cubes with oranges or something, something like that? I assume that's one of the combinations in Flavor Thesaurus More Flavors. Beef and orange <laughs> is not in the Flavor Thesaurus More Flavors. I've got a lot of beef stories, but I'll save them for another. <laughs> so not all of my early days were beef driven. They were. I was an absolute sweet fiend. So I just, I mean, I just ate sweets at any possible opportunity. I have terrible teeth. And uh, yeah, I mean, just I have great memories of being in the sweet shop with all those coloured jars and spending all my pocket money and just sweet, sweet, sweets and stealing as well. Just being very, very keen on sweets so that I would either walk to school and use my pocket money, use my bus money to buy uh, sweets or just for a little while went through a phase of pinching them, stealing them, actually. Is what I mean, not pinching, stealing. <laughs> and what about mealtimes, Nikki? What what were they like in your home? Uh, great, actually, because I, mean, I come from a really sort of lower middle class suburban house. In the 1970s, my mum was working, but my she just cooked from scratch all the time and she was uh, really good at it. And so we just grew up, I think, so important now that I have children of my own, I see how important it is to know what real food tastes like to know what, you know, real produce tastes like when it's being cooked from scratch or, you know, even, even peeled and chopped. 
you know, food that's sold in bags already peeled and chopped doesn't taste as good as the things that have taken a bit more trouble. I've talked about this before. My mum had the Marks and Spencer's All Colour Cookery book, which was written by a woman called Jenny Wright and actually edited by the woman who, and commissioned by the woman who did the American translation of lateral cooking. And it's just, you know, it's just like a 1970s bistro, pretty sophisticated for someone from my background. You know, there was, you know, Chinese recipes and Indian recipes, but not not blanded out. They were quite interesting. I mean, the Jenny Wright, whoever she is, could write a really great recipe and very concise appropriate for what was available in the supermarkets in the 70s or in the markets in the 70s, which was, from my memory, really quite restricted. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was, mealtimes were good. You know, we sat at a table and we ate together and, you know, and there was always pudding. And did you learn to cook from your mother, apart from watching watching the beef and feeling huge empathy for the dog? <laughs> did, did, you, yeah. did, you, did you cook at her hip? <laughs> I mean, I think maybe there were a couple of baking expeditions I had this amazing cookbook by uh gosh what's her name something Sedgwick Ursula Sedgwick called my learned cookbook which everybody who was my age I think had which was like this big format cartoon strips of a dog and a cat making things I spent a lot of time looking at this book which had cheesy baked potatoes it had this is like a children's uh, cookbook which included a recipe for baked Alaska it was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was it was certainly much more ambitious than perhaps we like CBB's I Can Cook. But it had these great, I loved comics and all the recipes were in comic strict form, but the artwork was really lovely as well. It was a bit like rhubarb and custard, if you know that children's, yeah. um, you might not. So I kind of, I was quite interested in the idea of cooking, but not the practical, not the practical side of actually doing it. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't something, I didn't cook until I was in my mid twenties, really. I always like it when people say that. It makes me feel it makes me feel um, more secure in my own cooking. But I because I I didn't grow up with any sort of instinctive cooking, and I I always feel slightly lesser than those who were making apple pies alongside their their parents and grandparents, which is just not really a part of my childhood. No, I mean I think I really Delia Smith had a lot to do with me learning to cook when I suddenly decided that I would do that, and I also I found by complete coincidence a copy of the Marks and Spencers colour book cookbook in a bin in the advertising agency I was working at I think someone had taken it cut one picture out and thrown the rest away and so for many many years I had this very this very familiar book to me where I could make the things that my mum made it didn't taste quite the same but except so it had everything except the lemon honeycomb pudding was there so I kind of I used that and I used a lot of, yeah, I think the Delia Smith, it was probably the all colour cookery book, stuff, which are kind of really, really well explained, aren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. they're very good for people who don't know. It's kind of turns you tells you to turn the tap on almost. It's so yeah. <laughs> proper primer. Nikki, just taking back a little bit before then, what about school food? Do you have happy memories of school food? Uh, I have happier memories of school food than I do of school. I had a terrible time at school. I mean, I just went to the local comprehensive. Uh, and the local primary school. I thought the food was great. I loved it. I mean, I was just probably quite a hungry child. I really, you know, I really liked to eat. I would always be the first in the queue, clutching my, I remember even like clutching my plate to my chest. And the food was really good. You know, there was a lot of roux making in the school at that time. So you'd have things like chicken supreme and very nice curries and very good roasts. And, oh, I, I mean, I just remember it being excellent but you know it was 
I'm of a certain age when school was buying in ingredients and they were peeling things and chopping a lot of it. I mean, there were certain things, I think, like the carrot and swede, which, you know, was like in batons and was always freezing cold, even if you were first in the queue. But it was, I remember it being really good and great, you know, lovely stodgy puddings with custard. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved it. I was just a very happy eater, very easy to feed. And when you, you say that you taught yourself to cook, have, you know, through Delia and finding the, the St. Michael or the Marks and Spencers or Colour Cookery book when you were in advertising, was there a period after you'd left home, before you got to that stage of deciding to learn to cook, where you were sort of feeding yourself without cooking, if you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, firstly, I lived with my, when I moved up to London from Hampshire, I was 18, um, and I was working in the uh, Her Majesty's Tax Inspectorate. Um, I was living with my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, and my mum did teach her to cook. I think because she was the older child, my mum taught her how to make a spaghetti bolognese and a couple of things. And I was a vegetarian at that point. So the thing that I, I mean, as a teenager, I kind of just lived on chips from the kebab shop, which were horrible, deep pan vegetarian pizza, if I could afford it. There was a Holland, because <laughs> I mean, it just wasn't ready meals and that kind of thing. So if I wanted to eat, I mean, I ate crap out of tins. I like spaghetti hoops and fried egg sandwiches and stuff. I mean, my, you know, I was a teenager. My, I was only interested in going to clubs, meeting boys, um, music. Uh, food didn't really, I mean, I still really, I like to eat, but absolutely no interest in making anything. But then I didn't have my own kitchen I was often living in you know shared accommodation with horrible kitchens and so it was only really when I kind of got to a certain age when you know there's also a place to cook a place that you might want to make something that wasn't covered in somebody else's aura and can you take us through the moment when you first thought of the food thesaurus and and, and how you went about considering writing it because it's obviously quite a technical detailed book how did you go from the sort of early stages of your interest in food to writing this book that's become a kind of bible for foodies so by that time we swung to the other extreme a i was not vegetarian anymore uh, so i was eating a lot more widely uh, i was really interested i think advertising ha- has given rise to quite a lot of people who are food writers and maybe drinks writers and i think you, it's that part of the culture at that time was that you went out to lunch a lot to really nice places suddenly you're exposed to a very different kind of, you know, deliciousness uh, and you want to try and replicate that kind of stuff. So I was still working in advertising. I had never really written anything. I think I found out, I, I thought I'd always said like I'd never written anything, but I found this appalling entry to a Waitrose food writing competition in my old papers the other day. So I obviously was having a crack at it. I just, I basically, I was, I'd done a wine course, learned a bit more about the difference between taste and flavour and I became really interested in unusual flavour pairings, things like they were collecting in my mind, strawberry and balsamic vinegar, chocolate and chilli, the things that Heston Blumenthal was doing in the fat duck. I just, I actually want, I really wanted to know was why, why is that? Why, why does some, why is, you know, why does something work particularly well with something else? Is there some kind of scientific rule that I don't know about. And then the real trigger was watching MasterChef and seeing someone pair butternut squash and blueberry and thinking, oh, you know, how did they think of that? And going off to, so going from my desk at work that lunchtime the next day to buy a book about flavour pairings and finding that there wasn't anything. 
and then looking on Amazon here and in the States and finding that there wasn't anything. And my husband's a writer and I sort of joked him, like, oh, I should write it myself. That was just obviously just a passing comment. But uh, I was sitting at my desk a few days later when the title just, I mean, it cannot, it can almost feel it just kind of popped into my head like a letter in a letterbox, the flavor thesaurus. And, and so kind of with that, you have the suggestion of a form and, you know, the back would be this index and the front would be some kind of elaboration. So uh, I started to collect the, the list of pairings which took, which really didn't take very long. It was a couple of weeks' work, and then wrote a few sample, wrote a few sample chapters. I think you can actually kind of see which ones they are when you look at the book because the entries are much shorter. I get much more windbaggy as as, as my career <laughs> develops. <laughs> and and how when you how did you go about pitching it to publishers? Was it was it kind of immediately a hit, or did you have to work quite hard on that side of things? Well, I felt I got an agent first on the strength of so I wrote a proposal. And working in advertising gives you a lot of discipline for that kind of thing because you're used to doing a lot of research, a lot, a lot of research, and then distilling it into a couple of pages uh, and talking about being able to reduce the idea into you know one sentence pitch and all that kind of. I'm very used to doing that kind of thing. So I wrote a really good proposal, <laughs> which got turned down by just about everybody. I mean, it just went out to everyone, and everyone came back and said, "Don't get it." You know, why wouldn't you just use the index of the book for this? And yeah, uh, and it was really awful. I don't know if you've been through that, but it's just, I was so upset. I was just so gutted. And I think, yeah, it just got to the point where I went back to, I'd actually stopped working in advertising and I was freelancing. So I just kind of forgot about it really. And then one day I was in a debrief, I think for Fairy Liquid or something glamorous like that. And I came out and I had a message on my phone. And in fact, my agent has said all along, look, I think Richard Atkinson at Bloomsbury, this is his book, but he's really busy and he hasn't got time to look at it. And in fact, Richard was working on the River Cottage Fish book, which, as you know, is like the size of a small house. And when he did finally get to look at it, he said, yes, this is my book. So I was super lucky that, you know, and it is such a kind of matchmaking thing, isn't it? You just got to find the person who digs what you dig. Yeah. And um, and Richard and I are simpatico like that, you know. A bit, a bit like a, a good food pairing, really. Yes, exactly. I mean, it is, you work with somebody who just really loves what you do. Yeah, he was great. Just a brilliant editor. So that was that was kind of like a happy ending to what was looking like just... In fact, a friend of mine had said, I'll sponsor a chapter and we'll find 99 people <laughs> to sponsor... It'd have to be better at networking than I am. <laughs> 99 people to to sponsor a chapter. And it'd be like a Charles Dickens thing where we just get people, you know, we do it by subscription and stuff. And I was quite into that idea. And of course that would be... Yeah, it's just Kickstarter. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a wealth of research and knowledge inside, well, all of your books, but, but looking at the Flavor Thesaurus as, as the first one. How long did it take to actually write once it had been commissioned? The first one took three years which felt like a really long time. It was very intense at the end because I wrote the first draft and Richard wrote all over it, wrote in every space. (laughs) And so I had six months to write the second draft and that was intense. I had to wake up at six o'clock in the morning and I think I wore a tracksuit for the first time in my life because I didn't have time to get dressed and and worked every weekend 
until I mean, I was just absolutely flat out on it. And, and I still read it and think could have done with a third draft, really. But it's, yeah, it was really, it was, it certainly cured me of any romantic notion of what it was like. I basically wanted to be, wanted to be a writer all my life. But that's partly because I thought I'd just spend the whole time in restaurants at lunchtime getting drunk all afternoon. <laughs> But it became, your book, The Flavor of the Thesaurus, became a huge hit. Um, did you have any sense that that was going to be the case? No. No, I think so. The first print runs like 5,000. It's really quite, I mean, I think a lot of books would be quite small. But I mean, because it's, because there aren't any pictures, it's quite easy to like reprint more and more. So I think probably these days you have, you know, if you've got pictures in your book, then it goes off to China and it has to be printed and it, the investment is much bigger, isn't it? But so it's a small first print run. No, I think everyone thought it would be like a little, you know, I mean, I don't know about Richard. I, I thought I thought it would have an audience. I mean, I often say I didn't, I mean, the advance was very modest, shall we say. And so I had to live on my own savings while I was doing this. Um, I mean, that's pre-kids. I don't know. Yeah, otherwise it would have been probably not possible. But I lived on my own savings and stuff. So I think... Would I have done that if I thought that I wouldn't have sold any? Not sure. I mean, maybe, maybe the ego of just getting that thing done, writing a book and having your name on a book, which is, you know, which was always something that I dreamt of. But, I mean, a lot of people do. I didn't think it would do this. I mean, I didn't think that it would become like it has. And certainly when the first foreign rights were sold, that was a massive surprise because it just seemed to me such a kind of eccentric book so you know such a, a very specific voice that uh didn't really yeah I didn't really know what people would make of what bubble and squeak is or like making jokes about smoking and things like that <laughs> and Nikki for readers who perhaps aren't familiar with it can you kind of take us through some of the pairings perhaps some of the more kind of unusual pairings that you came across or, or came up with Oh, God, I should always be much more prepared for this question. Um, so in the first one, I think, I mean, it's a real mixture, isn't it? It's a miscellany of, so it's about a thousand different uh, flavour combinations with something written for each. And so, you know, in some cases, it might be talking about how rhubarb and ginger, uh, it's quite a classic pairing in this country, but it's come from, came from the pharmacy. And at a time, of course, it, at one time, recipe books were also you know books of medicine and so that whole that mixture of rhubarb and ginger is if you had a bad stomach the rhubarb was a purgative and the ginger was to settle your stomach and now people make rhubarb and ginger crumbles and stuff and it's like that pairing which I have my doubts about in terms of its sensory beauty but that pairing has become classic it gets handed down and that's how flavor you know that's how some pairings are they just They've become set because we have repeated exposure to them. Uh, some of the more unusual ones. What, the one that excites me and still really excites me is coffee and orange. Like seeing coffee come away from just kind of typical brown flavors. So all those syrups that you see in coffee shops that are caramel and nut flavors and all those what we call brown flavors. Trying, I made this coffee and orange liqueur, which is from a Patricia Wells book, where you just stick loads of coffee into orange uh, into a big orange that you've cut 44 slits in and you put a coffee bean in each one and then you put it in some booze and then you leave it. And what's beautiful about it is it's sort of the flavours become, the flavours are quite evenly matched. So you can taste the orange through the coffee and, and I compare it, it's like, it's a bit like a chocolate orange profile. It's very 
interesting. It's very specific. I mean, sorry, it's very complex. It's got there's such a lot going on because you've got two flavors that are kind of that have bitterness as, the, as their taste base, and then lots and lots and lots of different flavor molecules, quite opposing flavor molecules. So you get this breadth of flavor. And in fact, coffee and blackcurrant, another great coffee and fruit combination. And when I looked more into that, because I'd never, I tried that in some little restaurant in the French Alps. Some guy made this incredible dessert, which was meringues and creams and a really intense blackcurrant sorbet and a very equally dark and intense dark coffee ice cream. And the, both of them were in this dessert. And it just, it was so wild. It was so sexy <laughs> as a flavor combination. And I, when I looked into it, I found out that, you know, there are lots of red wines from the mountains that have both blackcurrant and coffee notes to them and actually somebody from Taylor's I think who, who package and sell coffee said that actually a lot of coffee has quite a lot of rich blackcurrant notes so you find these things that kind of surprise you and you think really does that work together and then you might make then you're finding these echoes in nature of these two flavors together so I mean I think that's one of my favorite surprises. And with the latest book, you've, you've obviously returned to flavour pairings, which you say lateral cooking, which is coming between the two, is looks at techniques and sort of how one technique then builds out to, to various different types of batters or doughs or that sort of idea. But looking at more flavours, the, the later flavours stories, did you always feel that there were combinations that you hadn't had the space or time to explore in the first book? Was it always sort of in the back of your mind to come back to these pairings? Or is it newer than that? How did it come about? It's sort of by surprise, really. I just, uh, a lot of people had, you know, people would come and talk to me at, um, you know, literary festivals and things and say, oh, you, you know, you didn't write about this. And I wish you'd written about lentils and and I would own pretty much everything like, yeah, I wish I'd written about that too. And it's just, as I say, we kind of, there was three years I had to get that book finished. And the one, it was going to be a hundred flavors, but uh, I didn't have time to finish all the inclination, to be honest, to finish off the courgette chapter. So it went off with 99, which is kind of nice because it's sort of a bit more quirky. Uh, so obviously a lot of people are like, I wish you had written courgettes. And of course it is something that people end up with a glut of, and, you know, and there's often you know, good use of the flavour thesauruses when you've got something that you want to use up. But uh, So there was the kind of collection of things in my head that, yeah, I would like to write about. And, of course, as we, you know, we use more things like, you know, was we using tahini and pomegranates and all the kind of things that have become quite commonplace in our cooking through people like Otolenghi and um, uh, uh, Raminda Bogle and people like that who are making these really fantastic uh, recipes. I just... Yeah, I suppose in the back of my mind, I sort of thought it would be a good thing, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't feel like doing it. I didn't want to go through it again. And then one day I was sitting in a pub with my husband because we didn't have to do our tax return because we'd already done it, but we booked a babysitter. So we went to the pub. <laughs> Sounds great. This is where all good ideas. <laughs> he went off to the bar to order some food and he brought me a pint of Guinness and I took this first draft of delicious cold guinness and it really that's how it just came into my mind then like god i really i could write about all these different things it's not having to write a book it's having to write little it's like a project on each of the of the flavors 
And you wrote, you know, you want to write about broad beans and you want to write about okra and you want to write about all these things that you don't know enough about. So he came back from the bar or doing the food and I was just, I was fizzing. I'm like, oh God, I just got to do this and it's going to be great. And talked to my agent and Richard about it the next Monday. I just, I'm just, I'm ready to do this. And I hadn't finished lateral cooking. I finished that and I was into it. And it was it was exciting to be back there again because I, I think I thought there would be a lot more in terms of research to draw on. I thought there would be, you know, in the 10 years that have passed since the Flavour of the Source, given that flavour has become just generally a much more exciting, interesting area, I thought there would be more material and I was wrong about that. <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing i did find things like new lexicons for things which does help uh lexicon developed for pomegranate for cashew nuts what else for pecans for me I mean, there's already there's been one for maple i've done a chapter on maple syrup which is always a joy to write about because when there's lots and lots of flavor going on and they have quite a lot of money behind them so they tend to have quite a lot of interesting research to draw on yeah it was quite it was good I was excited about it and I I found the proposal the other day because I still wrote a proposal for it and it said oh I think this will take me two years to write it was four (laughs) Nikki when you're at home you live in London with your husband and children what what do you like to cook I mean do you apply the principles from your books to your home cooking yeah I mean particularly I think lateral cooking probably had quite a lot more to do with that you know I was an, I was a better cook for writing the flavor thesaurus but lateral cooking was the thing that took me to the difference between someone who follows a recipe and who really can just go to the fridge and look at what I've got or what I need to use and get on and make something and get on and make something that I want to eat as well. So, you know, if you've got all those forms in your head, you can just kind of, you don't need to look up what to do with it. You know what to, you know, you know what you like and you know what to do with it. I'm very, I'm super waste conscious, which is partly a shopping challenge as much as it's a cooking challenge, but I do tend to look at what's in the fridge. What have I got? And then use something around that. I find myself, I think with small children, I find myself cooking a bit more routinely than I did um, before the kids came along because I like the idea of them growing up with certain things that they eat on repeat, much more like the mum has a repertoire, like my mum had a repertoire, so that they grow up with a kind of a group of things that feel kind of cosy, homely, you know, like they really love pea soup. So, uh, you know, swimming tomorrow, I'll make sure there's pea soup for when they finish and stuff like that. I think if it was, you know, if I if they weren't about, I'd be doing slightly more exotic things. I'd like to think I'd be doing more exotic things. And having done lateral cooking and given yourself this sort of arsenal of knowledge and technique, do you ever still cook from sort of contemporary recipe writers? Would you get the latest cookbook or are you kind of past that now? I don't have a lot of space. I don't know if you find that. I feel like if, if it has to be a bit of a one in, one out. What have I made lately? I made things from Ciccone book, which I just really love her recipes and her her kind of plant forward ways, which are kind of so unshowy, but just her relationship with flavour is fantastic. She's such a brilliant. I make things out of the OTK book, the books, the Ertelengi, um Couple. So yeah, because because they are um, 
those people are doing like really creative things, aren't they? And I think that's probably lots of work goes into developing those recipes and they're so good and they're so, you know, they're kind of, I think they're semi-chefy in a way. I feel like they often require a bit more time and stuff like that. Most of the time I don't have you know, I don't have the time to spend two hours making something. And you, you mentioned the sort of plant-forward nature of the Jaconi cookbook. The Flavor Thesaurus, more flavour, is predominantly plant-based. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. When and why did that decision come about? Was that embedded in it from day one? Yeah, so from day one, it was going to be vegan. It was going to be vegan in its conception. So there wasn't going to be anything that wasn't a plant which isn't true because there was mushrooms. So mushrooms aren't a plant, are they? But the reason was more that all the things I hadn't written about were plants. Uh, and there were things there were things that I thought when I was writing the original Flavor of the Saurus that didn't have a place there because, uh, you know, what was I going to write about rice and what was I going to write about? I mean, beans was a very strange thing to leave out of the original. But anyway, I think for some reason or other, there's no, there's not really any beans in the original flavored saurus. And the only meat that anyone had said, I wish you'd written about, it was duck. And I thought, you know, I can live with a book that doesn't have duck in it. I love duck, but I mean, I could live with a book. So I'm just going to keep it to being all plants. Um, and I think I'd been working on it for about two weeks when I realized it's just not working and or not working for me because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. And without eggs and without some other kind of, you know, with a, well, mainly without eggs. But I just found that every time I was trying to write one of the short running recipes that you get in the flavored saurus, like just a, like do this. And it's very, very basic it was like being caught in brambles. You have to you have to explain so much because I'm not writing. If it's for a, an audience who's vegan, they probably know all those kind of things that you have to do in order to make a recipe or you make a particular form in a vegan fashion. And yeah, I, I would need to. My audience is not an audience of vegan people or vegetarian. I think my audience is chefs and keen amateur cooks, people who are quite into cooking. And lots of them aren't vegan. And so I need to make all these. It's just it just took too much time to explain things. And it, the book has to be snappy and uh, in and out in a lot of time. So I thought, well, I'll just redeal my hand a bit. So I think I added eggs, cheese, yogurt, which I really, really wanted to write about. I'm a yogurt fiend and eggs, cheese, yogurt. I think there's one other, but I can't remember. <laughs> and Nikki, what, what for you is comfort food? <laughs> well what would I make mashed potato like most people I suppose dal dal which I think I made a lot of when I before I wrote a book about food and I was made redundant once <laughs> once and I didn't know what to do because I'd worked ever since I was 18 years old I'd had a job and I was always used to like research you know doing research and writing stuff for my job so I, I thought, right, it was the 1st of June, the next day that I woke up for the first time without a job. And I thought, right, for this month, I'm just going to cook food, eat food, buy food, read novels from Spain. So I did that, cooked for the Moro book loads. I went, I went to all the Spanish delis in, in London and I read Don Quixote. And I was just like, got really, really into Spanish, like really under the skin of Spanish cooking, Spanish eating. 
and obviously you pick up a lot about flavor principles, but I did an Indian month. So I was, I was unemployed for a few months and I did an Indian month and I made a lot of dal in that Indian month. And it was weird because I don't think I'd ever, I didn't used to like dal. Only like home cooked dal, I think. All the stuff that I've eaten in restaurants and takeaways, I've noticed never really captured me in the same way as the recipe from the Leith's book of Indian and Sri Lankan cooking. And I kind of made it so often that it almost became like one of those things that reminds you of childhood. It just, I, I crave it. I have these days when I think, like, that is the thing that I want. And that with some yogurt and, you know, maybe some pickles and stuff, I think that would be my ideal comfort food or sweets <laughs> well I was going to ask do you still have the sweet tooth yeah I do but uh, I mean mm, I kind of I mean I avoid it because I try not to eat too much sugar but yeah I do but I, I kind of res- resist a bit more I mean no I think no, I, you know what let me I'm thinking about it I've grown out of it probably like I would not eat and I did not I would not eat a big bag of sweets like I used to but would you I think I could would you go for a pudding if 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 offered well you know if someone's made a banoffee pie I'm usually pretty happy <laughs> I really love that but I think that's a childhood yeah. thing right it's just there's some nice memories also but I mean that is sweet isn't it I think I made it for my kids and they thought it was like too sweet um cheesecake you know really quite you know quite solid calorific things yeah but not so much the bags of crunchy, sugary things. And Nikki, to finish, we, we always like to ask our guests, what would your desert island meal be? I think that's quite easy. I mean, I would really, really like fresh egg tagliatelle with black truffle and butter. I mean, that would definitely be my idea of absolute heaven. I'd probably eat it once a year, truffle and pasta. And yeah, I mean, what an unbelievable thing. I couldn't believe it when I tried truffles for the first time because I don't like mushrooms. So I thought I wouldn't like truffles. And I I do. I really, really do. And then after maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe that coffee and black currant dessert that I was talking about. So I forgot what it's called, a vacheran glass with homemade coffee, ice cream and homemade black currant sorbet pushed to quite a quite a strength. Um, yeah yes oh god yes please and would you have a drink (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah I mean the whole bottle of um I think last time I went to um last time I went and had truffles and pasta was at Locanda Locatelli and I asked the um sommelier for a wine match not too expensive and he he chose a red for me that was I think might be one of the house reds he said you don't need a very fancy wine with that so a nice bottle of red that someone else has chosen. Actually, I have a dessert wine with the dessert as well. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Nikki, thank you so much for joining Table Talk today. And Nikki's new book, The Flavoured Thesaurus, More Flavours, Plant-Led Pairings, Recipes and Ideas for Cooks, is out this Thursday, the 11th of May. <laughs> <laughs> 